If you have old school values and mentality, the world is your oyster, especially in this day and age. This notion that you can sit back and, and just, you know, everything's just gonna happen at your pace, that just means you're gonna be working for 40 years. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is Bob Hoban, chair of the cannabis industry group for Clark Hills Denver office and the co-leader of its cannabis industry practice. Bob sits at the center of the world's largest commercial cannabis industry network. As the cannabis industry commercialized, he was widely credited for creating the class of lawyers now known as cannabis attorneys. He has truly transcended the practice of law and is regularly involved in assembling and structuring large-scale cannabis industry M&A transactions. Bob founded the Hoban Law Group in 2008, shortly after cannabis was legalized in Colorado and became the world's leading full-service commercial cannabis industry law firm. For more than a decade, HLG represented the cannabis industry's titans in every aspect of the commercial cannabis industry around the world. And in July of 2021, HLG was acquired by international law firm Clark Hill. From 2010 to 2016, Bob served as one of, one of the nation's first cannabis policy instructors at the University of Denver, where he regularly lectured regarding cannabis topics and led a university-sanctioned research practicum concerning the, effect, the efficacy of marijuana regulation. Given this academic background, Bob has been asked to work with the governments of more than 30 countries on crafting commercial cannabis public policy. Bob has, con has consistently been recognized as one of the most influential people in the global cannabis industry by a variety of organizations and publications over the course of the past 14 years. Since 2013, Bob has achieved the Martindale Hubble AV preeminent peer review rating awarded to only those lawyers with the highest ethical standards and professional ability. He was recently named a Cannabis Law Trailblazer by the National Law Journal, and he has been consistently recognized as one of Denver's top cannabis lawyers for nearly a decade. Bob's a Forbes contributor and frequently appears in media coverage as a legal expert on cannabis and has been a keynote speaker at dozens of cannabis events around the world. Major media outlets like New York Times, the LA Times, Chicago Tribune, CNN, Rolling Stone, Forbes, Vice, MSNBC, and Bloomberg have all called on Bob for his unique perspective on the cannabis industry. And we are glad to welcome him to the show. Bob, glad to be with you. Carol, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. And uh, I, I'm going to have to trim down that introduction. Uh, <laughs> the, the <next laughs> I, I really appreciate it. You've it, done a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think the interview might already be over. I'm exhausted. Um, <laughs> I'm a busy man. <laughs> exactly. So, so, you know, as I mentioned, you started your firm back in 2008, shortly after we here in Colorado legalized, I believe that was recreational or was that medicinal in 2008? Uh, well, in, in, 
1999, Colorado put the uh, the medical marijuana provisions in its constitution. It was 2012 where they went to dull use. Right. Okay. And and how did this epiphany come to you? <laughs> had you ever, you know, had you ever done anything in the cannabis industry? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a corporate lawyer. Uh, I was a commercial litigator uh, for many years in my career dealing with business disputes. But, um, you know, the, the reason that I entered into the cannabis industry is, is really twofold. Primarily uh, the fact that my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, uh, was given six months to live, and uh, I relocated her from uh, New Jersey, where I grew up, where she lived at the time, uh, to Colorado, uh, so that she could have a, a semblance of a relationship with my very young children at the time. And, uh, and when I saw every morning, I'd go by and, and, and make her coffee and tea and, and, and breakfast before I came down the hill. I live in Evergreen, so I'd, I'd drive down the hill to Denver. Um, one morning, I looked across the table and I, I saw her taking a, one of her pills, uh, bringing it to her mouth. And I saw drool visibly come out of her mouth. Uh, and that sent a signal to me where I said, oh my goodness, she's, she's using the pills the way the doctors prescribed them, but she's clearly addicted to this substance. The quality of life on those types of pills, oxycodone, oxycotton, whatever, whatever yeah, the, right. the case it might have been at the time, um, just not a good quality of life, moodiness. And when you start off in the morning, having uh, gone through the treatments and the therapies, you just feel awful. So you really can't feel better until you take your pill. But you can't, you can't take the pill until you have something in your stomach. It was just this catch twenty two. Long story long, um, I decided to 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 look at ways that my mother could take advantage of the cannabis plant, uh, which was legal in Colorado at the time, and uh, that kind of opened the door. And uh, when I began to see some of these caregivers, as they're known, were known in before the dispensary commercialized days. Uh, talking with those folks and, you know, one thing led to another, you're a lawyer, maybe you can help me here. Uh, I understood commercial, uh, uh, business and, and real estate. Um, and it, it became a natural fit. So, uh, my mother did live for three, almost three and a half years. Uh, most of that with no opio, uh, opioids, uh, which was, which was a blessing, but, um, you know, that's, uh, that's how I got into the cannabis industry, Carol. So I have to imagine there was a huge learning curve. Well, yes and no. I mean, look, uh, I, I I don't know that any anyone that's ever been a teenager, I, I'm skeptical if they don't if they're not somehow familiar with cannabis. Uh, <laughs> right. But at the end of the day, uh, we're talking about something that was brand new, and that it was a commercial cannabis right. industry. Um, so it and, and and as a lawyer. This is not why I went to law school. I went to law school because I thought it was a platform to make change and to to see to be big and bold. But frankly, most lawyers, the vast majority, go to law school because it's a nice, conservative, safe profession. Um, so to work in a field uh, amongst lawyers and amongst amongst that mentality uh, in a brand new industry where you were applying and or breaking rules on a regular basis, uh, coming up with novel strategies. That that's kind of what I prided myself on, and and that that really uh, was was the catalyst to to begin my my work in the space. Uh, but it was applying principles from other industries, employment law, 
basic contracts, real estate and zoning principles, what's legal and what's not under the law, things that lawyers do on a daily basis, just applying them in a new context. Right. Did the fact that, that you know, cannabis is illegal from a federal standpoint affect how you had to work? I mean, you know, we've heard so much about that here in Colorado. Because I think we were, weren't we the first state to um, legalize recreational? That's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so uh, on in November of, of 2012, Colorado and Washington both had it on the ballot. Uh, technically, Colorado's happened first because we're in the mountain time zone and the Pacific time zone <laughs> polls didn't close until an hour later. So, yes, you are correct. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's an interesting thing when you think about uh, the, the, the legal profession and the ethics and the professional responsibility behind it. Uh, there are some states that even to this day do not uh, uh, expressly allow or authorize their lawyers to practice in this area. You still, in some federal wow. courts, can't walk into a courtroom on a cannabis matter because it's still federally illegal. So there are ethical things that that we ran across quite often uh, at the beginning. Uh, other lawyers and other law firms would go, oh, you guys are the weed lawyers and sort of scoff yeah, at right. us. But, you know, here we are <laughs> many years later and uh, very successful. You know, yeah, there, there was a period of time where those law firms were calling me almost monthly to come and join them. So, uh, so fair uh, turnabout is, uh, is fair play, I presume. Amen, brother. So, um, and as I mentioned, you founded Hoban Law Group in um, 2008 and sold it to Clark Hill, which is a very large, you know, global organization, right? With yes. about 1,800, 1800 employees. It, tell me about the founding of your firm in that 13 years. And you know, when, when you and I first talked, you said, you know, I wish I'd met you sooner. <laughs> Tell me about some of the challenges you had in, in yeah. starting and building a firm. Well, a well, firm. well, certainly, uh, you know, the, 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 in the context of that conversation, what I was referring to was just your, your experience with organizational management yes. and management consulting and just right. how do you, how do you build a business? What I had, uh, which not many people had was the vision. And I had the hustle, right? I right. was going to go for it. I decided not just to make a cannabis-centric law firm, uh, mm -hmm. which now every firm has a cannabis division. Right, right. Uh, you know, back then there wasn't such a thing. And, and, you know, when you thought of cannabis law, if you thought of cannabis law, you thought of a criminal defense attorney, right? But that's mm -hmm. not what I, I've never practiced criminal defense uh, a day in my life. I, I, I applied business principles to these things. So taking that hustle, taking that vision... I took it a step further. I read an article, and that article was about how, in a modern day, you can build a national law firm. So I married those two concepts together and just went for it. So I had a great staff. We had about five lawyers in the office. I started, over the course of about six months, to go to as many cannabis conferences as I could. These were the early days. In there, I'd met, I'd run across lawyers, and I'd Go out to lunch or drinks with these lawyers. Get to know them. Where are they from? What are their practice areas? Do we get along? Do we jive? And then over time, I started to be so bold to say, hey, Lawyer X in Chicago, would you consider joining our firm um, in a way, in an in in economically friendly way, where it was friendly to me because I didn't have to lay out cash on a on a every payday basis? 
and it was friendly to them that they made more of the dollar that went to the business other than just a salary. Right. Most people don't know this, but lawyers basically make between 33 and 40 percent of the dollars that they generate. That's the economic model for just about every law firm. Sometimes okay. it's referred to the rule of thirds, right? If I generate mm. a dollar, I get 33 cents of that dollar. 33 cents goes to the overhead of the business. Mm -hmm, 33 mm -hmm. cents goes to the profits of the business. Got, so, it, got it. That's the basic model. So, um, so I understood that. I had good people in place. But what I did was I went out and I, I, I amassed a large stack of paper. Uh, it was uh, what I called uh, independent contractor agreements with these attorneys. And then it was, let's call it January of, uh, uh, this would have been 2009, no, no, probably 2010 when I really stepped on the gas here. And I said to my staff, I said, look, these are all our new attorneys. And there was 35 of them. And they went, what are you talking about? They had no <laughs> idea I was out doing this because... <laughs> Frankly, I didn't want to distract them. Their business yeah. was to run the office in Denver and to make sure things were getting done. The lawyers were doing their jobs. The bills were going out. We were getting paid. Everything was... So this was sort of... I've always sort of made this distinction in business between here's your job and here's your initiatives. Well, here's the job. Keep focus on the job. My initiative at that time was to go out and build this thing. So I dropped that stack on a woman named Kate, uh, who was my... My uh, original office manager became my chief operating officer, helped me build the firm. And within three months, we had a website and we turned the light on. We were the first and overnight, the easily the largest cannabis centric law firm in the country. Uh, and we had a national presence. Uh, so that was the easy part. The hard part was putting in the management protocols, the policies and procedures. Uh, all of the things that effectively you need to backfill when all of a sudden you have a bunch of employees, uh, that's where I could have used some help. Uh, but we we did our best. We we uh, we wandered through it. Uh, we figured it out. Uh, the, the folks, it was a young firm across the board. The attorneys were young. I was young. My staff was young. But everybody was loyal. They were smart and they hustled and, and, and we got it done. How would you describe your culture? It's a, it's a great question. And, and, and frankly, it was the culture that kind of changed over time, which led me to, to make the decision to sit in the chair I'm sitting today yep. at Clark Hill. But, uh, but culture was, it was work hard, play hard. Uh, again, an easy concept too when you're, when you're younger, uh, when you either don't have children or your children are younger. My children are older now, so it's a different story. But, the, the, you know, it was... We're going to go out and we're going to ski all day on Friday, and then we're going to work 12 hours the next day to get this done. I mean, th this is what we did. Uh, uh, you right. know, just go, 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 go. Right. It was really, really great. Um, and it became a family. It was a, it was a group of families and friends. Those 35 attorneys I brought in from the outside, mm -hmm. they quickly got to know each other. In fact, it's one of the greatest joys I can say in business that I've ever seen was when I brought all of these people together how they all became friends and colleagues. And mm -hmm. to this day, they're, they're great friends. And mm -hmm. that was a, a magical thing. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, it was, it, that, that's how I would describe the culture. The sort of work hard, play hard, but in the context of a family. A good family reunion, not a bad family reunion. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I hear you. So those 35 attorneys that you brought in, Bob, did you, what did the staff look like in Denver before you did this? Um, so we had, uh, we had, Roughly five staff people and mm -hmm. uh, between five and eight lawyers at the time. Um, okay. And uh, I ran, I always ran the law firm like a business. 
I always right? had account statements prepared. I always did everything that I learned from my clients, frankly, oftentimes that uh, my business clients, I saw how they ran their businesses. I saw what mistakes they made in running their business. And I put that in place. Far too many law firms are run by lawyers who don't see it as a business. It's a law firm. Right. It's somehow better than a business or different than a business. Well, you and I both know it's just a business, Carol. I mean, at the end of the day, right. we, we needed to have those principles in place. So I had extra administrative mm -hmm. personnel accordingly. Um, mm -hmm. And then those 35 attorneys came in and it quickly began to stress the system, as you can imagine. Uh, so we had to slowly but surely um, find ways that we formalized attorneys would support each other in a formal structured way, and then ultimately brought in uh, staff to backfill the administrative and perhaps para support, paralegal type support that those attorneys needed. Got it. So, so you know, back, back to talking a little bit about your work hard, play hard culture. How does that differ or um, compare to other firms that you'd been with in the past? <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I think that the pace of it was such that we all knew that this was not destined to be the place where we were. This was not a firm that was going to last for 35 years. It was not intended to be that. It was intended to be, let's capitalize on this, this brand new industry. Let's, as lawyers, do something different and, and more exciting than half of our brothers and sisters out there out there that practice law, that light. Life as a lawyer is hard. It is a it is it is a it is a schlag. It is a struggle. It is something that uh, you know lawyers, when it comes down to it, are hourly employees. Yes, they get paid a little bit more per hour than your average person, but you're only judged by the amount of hours that you put in. We wanted right. to push this as 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 hard and as fast as we could. Um, so so again, we kind of knew that it was not built to last. I didn't want to leave a legacy behind. But, and, 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 and by the way, looking at lawyers now, particularly amongst in the firm I am situated right now, I think it was that mentality that, that made us so ambitious and eager to succeed. Because I think most lawyers, like I said, they, they go for comfort. Maybe not comfort in the subject matter of what they're doing, but comfort in their repeatable patterns. They go to the office, they do the same type of work each day. The cannabis industry was anything but that. A cannabis right. law firm handled regulatory matters, tax matters, litigation, um, M&A transactions, business transactions, appeals, intellectual property. Uh, in a brand new industry with a new law here and a new law here and international movement every single week uh, had changed. So, so that was the enthusiasm and, and I think the energy that we were we were riding, but much, much different than the way lawyers are wired to right. go sit at their desk, get on their phone for four hours, work for four hours and go home, understanding that's probably what they're going to do for the next 25 or 30 years. That was never, never my mentality or our firm's mentality. So Hope and Law Group was your first law firm that you founded. I know you, you have started other companies in the past. Uh, what would you say, at least with HLG, were some of the as a as a leader of that organization some of the maybe two or three mistakes that you made and kind of what were the epiphanies you had around those and the pivots you had to make or the changes that's a, it's an excellent question you know in in hindsight uh we can all look back and say we would have done things differently i, I think you know right. one of the things i did perhaps prematurely was elevate 
younger people that demonstrated um, mm. enthusiasm, energy, and, and intelligence into uh, leadership positions, perhaps prematurely. Um, sometimes mm -hmm. that backfired because they didn't know how to handle the mm -hmm. leadership. Uh, it became a power mm -hmm. role. Mm -hmm. um, and then they mm -hmm. began to treat everyone around them differently. Uh, and that was not toxic per se, but not a productive work environment necessarily. Um, mm -hmm. So elevating uh, people before their time mm -hmm. uh, was a mistake I made uh, multiple times. Now, I would say that I didn't have a choice because that was the majority of my staff were younger folks. But, uh, uh, you know, certainly there was a marketplace for, for more experienced folks. I learned that later in the game. Uh, another thing I did was uh, it, it helped me grow the firm, but I waited too long to change my economic model. Uh, as I talked about earlier, my attorneys were on a uh, uh, a independent contractor scenario, uh, and they literally were independent contractors because we didn't dictate when or how or, or, or what they did. Um, yep. But at the same time, you need two feet in to have a successful business, in my opinion. When someone is an independent contractor, they'll work hard when they're working for you, but their foot is always on the outside looking for something doing something, et cetera, by definition. And so I, I, I probably waited too long to, uh, to, uh, to change that model where I just said, all right, the, the company's stable enough, the revenues are stable enough for years that yep, I'm going to make everybody, or at least, you know, <laughs> uh, the vast majority of them W-2s. Uh, those, those, are, those are two yeah. big things that I probably waited too long okay. uh, to, uh, that, I, that I definitely uh, made mistakes mm -hmm. of. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting, you know, the first thing that you mentioned, you know, bringing, bringing young leaders in before they, you know, promoting them before they were ready. This is, I would say, one of the common denominators among companies for, I mean, in all industries, promoting people because they were a great individual contributor and moving them into management and, you know, keeping their fingers crossed. <laughs> I hope they do yeah. a good job. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, why I think companies are getting more cognizant of this, but it still is an issue that did it ever dawn on you to bring somebody into, you know, to, to train them, to coach them and how to be good leaders? Um, that's, that's a great question. The answer is not until it was, I wouldn't say too late, but not for years. No. I mean, you know, yeah. part of it, you say you were just moving so fast and building the business and hustling. So you didn't pay attention to those things. Part of it is you just don't know what you don't know. And, you know, it, it, to me, it, anybody right. that builds a business is going to go through those challenges. Uh, and of course. I wish, yeah. that's why, Carol, I said, I wish I would have met someone like you sooner. Because somebody, yeah. if, if somebody yeah. could have pulled me inside and said, hey, congratulations, things are looking good from the outside. Um, the app challenges but, with X and Y and yeah. Z, I would have said, yep. absolutely. You know, you, you almost don't know, believe it or not, that consultancy is and the 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 value that it can be if you find the right person yeah. uh, until it's too late. That's right. And you're exactly right. You know, it's so great to hear to hear because I use, you know, I always talk about coaching where it, 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 you know, we as human beings sort of operate in three realms. We operate in, you know, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. But where great coaching and leadership training works is in the realm of I don't know what I don't know. Right. And that's the problem. And that's, I think, you know, where, where you're saying, you know, finding the right person can actually have you recognize that so that you can, can start to create structures and put them in place to move forward rather than having it limited. Yes. Right. 
So, so it, 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 how, how did, how did Clark Hill come into your, come into your world? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, I guess monthly for a while, then quarterly, and then back to monthly. There were years where I would start to get calls <laughs> from large firms, medium-sized firms saying, hey, uh, we, we, we'd, we'd like to have a cannabis practice and, you know, we see what you're doing out there and, and we think this might be a good fit. Um, so, you know, I always entertain those discussions. And frankly, I learned more about our firm and myself than anything in going through that exercise. So I always tried my yeah, best to smart. sort of yep. indulge those folks and, and take it seriously. I wasn't taking them for a ride, but, you know, yep. listen and, and learn. And, and I did learn. And, and I always said no, because in my gut, I knew the time wasn't right. Uh, I just, I, I liked yeah. what I was doing and, and, and uh, I liked what I was doing it with. And I did see, I was always on the fence. Is this firm a legacy firm? Is this firm going to be around for 50 years? Or is this firm right. just the current iteration of this group for this purpose? I never jumped off that fence. Um, I, I just never committed one way or the other. And that was a, an undertone there. Uh, I knew in 2019 that there were some challenges in part with the young people that I had elevated. Um, and frankly, just their, their just fundamental misunderstanding of how the business world operated. They knew their lane and they knew the people under their supervision very well. And they did an excellent job there. But it was oftentimes inconsistent with the broader business principles at play. Um, so when I saw that and I began to realize that, um, you know, I brought in, a, I did bring in, in, let's say, October of 2019, a seasoned management consultant. Um, and she helped and became the COO of the firm. Uh, for a period of time, and she helped me identify as an outsider what the challenges were with some of those people and what are some of the processes and some of the systemic things that we needed to fix. And we started to go down that road. Uh, then the pandemic hit. And, and this was really the telltale sign to me that I needed to make a change. A, I had served in a capacity as a chief executive officer for hire for some of my clients. Uh, on an interim basis, never on a permanent basis. So I, I, I got to see that world, and, and that became something where people were picking up the phone and calling me to see if I wanted to do that on a permanent basis. So that was intriguing. But coupled with the fact that COVID was a gut punch for, for, for many of us, it was definitely a gut punch for my lawyers, meaning they stopped billing. The clients still needed the work. They just stopped working. Everybody had this this, oh my gosh, I have to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And am I, you know, this was the, <laughs> this was the common theme. And I, and, and, you know, I have a heart and I'm a very kind and generous person, but Carol, this was my life. This was my livelihood. This That's was right. my business that mm -hmm. my family depended on. And no matter what I did with it, the people under my, my supervision that worked for me needed to pull their weight. There was no excuses for this. Right. And that prompted right. a bunch, a series of very difficult discussions with very important and close people to me and my firm uh, and made me realize that um, I don't want to own this thing anymore. I don't, I don't want to be at the whim of other people and their lives. That's the way I felt. And that's the, the God's honest way I looked at it um, because I had put so much out there and marrying those two concepts, they didn't really uh, on an individual basis, understand how much work went into it and really what the business was all about. They understood what they did, but not the business as a whole. 
And and I tried to expose right. them to that. And their decisions and their input was just, it was learning. It wasn't educated. It wasn't in 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 in, in business. Then the gut, then the, the gut punch from from COVID, and I knew it was time to start shopping. And so I looked at a couple permanent uh, chief executive officer opportunities. Um, I started to talk with some of the big uh, consulting firms in the world um, and went several rounds with one of them until uh, it was revealed that they one of them had a role and and a serious uh, uh, crisis that was in the news. And they decided not to, quote unquote, double down on drugs, uh, meaning they didn't want to start a cannabis division. And uh, so then I was left to to talk with law firms. I was going, I was looking to get into the consulting world. Um, that's, it's, it's, it seemed like a nice mix mm-hmm. between uh, being a chief executive officer, sort of, and a law mm-hmm. lawyer. It, it seemed like the perfect balance there, having done a lot of consulting mm-hmm. work in that context. And uh, um, it turned out that the one firm that I put all my eggs in, in the basket, the one consulting firm decided to refrain and, and step back. So then I, I started to reach out to the recruiters and some of the firms that had reached out to me over the years. Yep. Uh, I interviewed yep. 48 of them and settled on a top five list in, let's call it May of uh, 2021. And by July 1st, the merger had been complete. So uh, at the very end there, it was a 60 days of fast and furiousness. Um, I, in effect, got divorced from two thirds of my lawyers who I had personal relationships with, not because I didn't want them or Clark Hill didn't want them, because they just they didn't want this. They didn't want big law. Um, right. That yeah, I get it. I mean, some people are startup people. Some people are giant company exactly. people. Exactly. You know, it's that's it is what it is. You just really can't force one to be the other. Exactly. But uh, but it was it, I learned a lot, and and here I am today, and and, it, and it's a good place to be. A lot. There's a lot. Of, if you're a lawyer. There's a lot of negative things said about, quote unquote, big law, right? These AMLAW rated firms. Uh, and I could see the basis for that. Uh, sometimes there's there's a lack of culture because of the organization is too big. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Sometimes if you're just a number, you know, then they just expect you to grind away. Mm-hmm. But if you come in That's with right. the right mindset, uh, enthusiasm and, and, and book a business, um, it, it's a good fit. It, it's a really good fit, but it's not a great fit for everyone. Why did Clark Hill make sense for you? You want to know the, the truth of that was uh, I had gotten calls back from just about every firm that I expressed an interest in. And some of those sure. firms, you'd talk to the lead of their corporate division or you'd talk to their recruiting manager. Um, within a day or two of expressing interest in Clark Hill, their CEO called me on my cell phone. Very he called smart. me on his cell phone and he was newly assuming that role and he was a heck of a guy and uh, wanted yep. a Denver office for their firm and wanted um, a, uh, a cannabis industry group. And uh, mm-hmm. it was a it was a really, really good fit. And then I began to explore yeah. the cultural side of things and realize that right. it's a big firm, but it's not a stuffy big firm. It's hardworking professionals and good, good people. And I've become very close friends with a lot of them. Yeah, that's really fantastic. I, I love that, you know, you, you know, your point about, well, sometimes, you know, the head of corporate law would call me or, you know, their, in, their in, you know, rec- internal recruiting would call you. And, you know, I'm certainly, you know, if they've got a quality recruiter, you know, what I would refer to as what I was a professional headhunter. 
you know, that's one, that's one thing. But, you know, the fact that he was smart enough, the CEO to realize, you know, this is something that we really want. I need to make that call myself. I mean, that's probably what I would have advised. Well, and, and, it, and it was smart. And, it, and as I say, it, it, it meant a lot to yes. me. And, and to this day, we have a closed relationship. Makes you feel good, doesn't it? That's a, it's the warm and fuzzy, uh, the warm and yeah, fuzzy but, aspect. But, but, but guess what? I was told by other recruiters and other folks that, that he should have never done that. But that's what made it happen. Uh, what? Yeah, you know, that's a whole separate conversation. But can you remember why they told you that he shouldn't have done that? I, I totally disagree. Well, because there's processes in place and there's people in place and there's, there's oh, different... You, blah, blah, I, hey, listen, blah, girl, blah. You're preaching to the choir on that one. I'm with you, but... You know, I think I think as long as, you know, if 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 I were his recruiter and he was my CEO, he and I would sit down and I would say, you you should call him and here's what you should say. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we would sit together as partners and strategize around what yeah. he should say. That's what should have happened. I think it was really brilliant that he did that. You know, so again, that's that that's a longer conversation. So, so as I mentioned, the the firm overall has about eighteen hundred employees. Uh, your group has about sixty. How many of your of your lawyers came along with you, and are they still there? About fifteen of our lawyers came along from the former HLG okay. uh, Hoban Law Group days, and um, yep, uh, all but three of them are still with us uh, at the firm today. And contributing, Good. and I think they found their groove. Uh, you know, uh, again, yep. words like career suicide came up when the people that weren't coming to to Clark Hill from Hoban Law Group, they were telling some of these lawyers. In fact, one down the hall who I work with on an intimate basis every single day, he told me Attorney X, who's no longer didn't come over to Clark Hill, said it'll, it'll be career suicide mm-hmm. to go to that firm and, and so forth and so on. And then my my my... One of my leaders at the firm, you know, looked at me and says, you're going to a big firm. And and I said, yeah, this is the challenge. We're going to do the exact same thing we did, but we're going to do it on a bigger platform. Isn't that exciting? Mm -hmm. The answer was no, it wasn't exciting and it wasn't possible. These were not people that had visions or, or, or ambitions to build, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess. And, you know, you learn more about yourself and that's kind of what drives me and and had driven me and, and the lawyers that aren't with us that they didn't. That any longer they 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 didn't fit they didn't want to fit or perhaps they didn't see the the opportunity that the platform presents yeah you know it's 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 so large company business and small company business are really distinctly different you know i i've talked so much over the years about you know startups small companies they build a culture they have a vision they have a business strategy Everyone on the executive team is aligned with these things. And the greatest challenge they have, the greatest challenge they have, Bob, is to be able to maintain those things as they grow. Yeah. Yeah. Right? At what point? I mean, it's like having to work on your marriage every single day. It can be exhausting. And not everybody really wants to go through all that. No, no, no. They (laughs) did. Okay. I think they should, but you know, I'm not making the decisions for you. And that's where, where the problems are, where the challenges happen, right? The, the company gets really, really big and it's because of the work that has to go into maintain the vision, the business strategy, how you communicate, all that being aligned, it, it just can be overwhelming 
And if one person slips, that could slip through it all yeah. the way down the line. So, you know, you know, this is, you know, this is where the big, the big consulting firms make all their money. And, and I'm not so sure they make a huge amount of difference in the end, because when a company gets that big, you know, fill in the blank of any giant company, right? Are, are they really prepared to do what's necessary to, you know, bring their culture back to the way it was or in a way that people want to work for it? Right. Or, or, or that's realistic, right? I mean, you know, right. that's where, you know, you asked about the culture before, the work hard, play yeah. hard thing. Um, by the end, they were referring to it as a lifestyle firm. I don't know what that is, but that was, I was never involved. <laughs> I'll tell you in what it is in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, please do, because <laughs> when I realized that I owned a lifestyle firm, I go, wait a second. Uh, again, this is my family. Right. This is my livelihood. This is not yeah. a lifestyle firm. If I'm working 12 hours a day, what kind of That's lifestyle right. are you living on my dime? I'll never forget. I was doing some work for a tech firm, a startup, a disruptor. Um, this is probably around 2012, maybe. Um, and the co-founder CTO, he was the one who came up with the product and then brought his co-founder CEO in. Joe said to me one day, listen, if, uh, if, if, if people mention work-life balance, they're not going to be a fit. <laughs> so often that's a, you know, a, a lifestyle company is often seen, okay, by the outsiders as somebody who's, hey, maybe they're not working as hard. You know, they're not, they're not as, they're not as, they don't have the drive to make the money. They'd rather go skiing on Friday or skiing on Monday, um, you know, and they'll get the work done when they get back or whenever. Right. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, we'd work hard, play hard. We'd all go skiing on Fridays. Right. <laughs> and some, some people might look at that thinking, oh, they're not, they're not really committed to their work. Right. And, and that's really not true because they're only seeing it from the outside, you know, working 12 hour right. days or plus, I, I can't really say that's a lifestyle company, but an outsider looking in may view it that way. Right. Well, the, 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 the notion of uh, work hard, play hard, it seemed to me that lifestyle firm meant you took the work hard out of it and just said play hard. Right. And, you know, again, I, 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 I'm all for people, you know, integrating work and life and however that right. works, uh, you know, but in many ways I'm old school. Right. And, and I think that if you have old school values and mentality, mm -hmm. the world is your oyster, right. especially in this day and yeah. age. This notion that you can sit back and, and just, you know, everything's just going to happen mm -hmm. at your pace. That just means you're going to be working for 40 years. I'm at the point in my 40s right now where I don't need to work anymore if I don't want to because I put the time in. I worked it. I did it. I worked hard. So, you know, that's my... If there's balance in my life, that's the balance. I always worked hard and play hard, still do. But now... I could. I don't have to work anymore. I can just play if I want to. I won't because my mind's too active, well, and right, I enjoy the course. challenge of it. But 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 why why commit yourself to working for forty years because you're going to only work a little bit here? Why not? Why not go for it? Yeah, yeah. That's my opinion. well, and of course, of course, you know, some will agree, some will disagree, and people need to do what makes the sense for them, right? Yeah. You know, I, yeah. like I said, I, I've told people m m over the years, it's not my job to tell you how much money you should want to make. It's not my job to tell you, um, the kind of company you, you, you should be working for. You know, I can only ask you the questions and discover where the best fit would be for you. Right. And, and, right. and even running a company, it's the same thing. You know, what do you want to build as a founder? 
And because, because it's those things that help you put, you know, once you have that alignment and, and we realize that it's those things that then help us build a talent strategy to serve those needs for you. Right? right. You're not going to bring in somebody that's like, yeah, I'm going to go skiing every Friday, no matter what. Well, no matter what may not be the best attitude to have. Right. Right. I mean, right. I, I'd like to be out riding my horse practically every afternoon. <laughs> One of my horses can't do that. <laughs> right. I just, you know, I need, right. I have work I need to get done, you know? So, um, yeah, that's really, really great. Um, what would you say, looking at the cannabis industry, Bob, is there any outdated advice being disseminated and what is it? Well, I think outdated notions are that this, that everybody in the cannabis industry just makes money hand over fist. <laughs> um, that's been the case for a small group of people mm-hmm. for a small period of mm-hmm. time, but it's a very hard business. And in fact, because of their, the, on the marijuana side of the industry, the, the, because of something called 280E, it's a tax issue right. under the IRS right. code. You don't get to deduct ordinary expenses. Right. So, so, so if I gross a billion dollars and I'm a, a, a non-cannabis company, my profit margins are going to be pretty darn good in there, right? Uh, I'm not going to be able to, I am going to be able to deduct almost all expenses for that company. Whereas if you're a cannabis company and you're subject to this 280E requirement, then you're only allowed to deduct a small portion of your expenses under the category right. of cost of goods sold. And it's right. a much smaller category than you think. So my point is, even if I gross this enormous amount of money, I'm not going to have a net profit that's going to allow me to make a lot of money as an owner uh, or to distribute profit to investors. And that's one of the biggest yeah, right. misnomers. And that's because of the federal scheduling uh, of cannabis at, at the marijuana at the federal level. So, you know, that's one of the challenges and, and one of the things I think people don't understand. Another thing is that, you know, that this is some sort of niche or cottage industry. Uh, this is a global industry. It's worth yep. $75 yep. billion dollars globally today. Uh, it's happening all over the world. The U.S., frankly, is going to be one of the last holdouts to not make it nationally or federally legal. Uh, and that's just nonsensical, but it does speak to our hypersensitive partisan politics in this country and the fact that I just think as a, forget about R's and D's, I just think our government, our 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 actors are used to making decisions that are little tiny decisions. They don't make big decisions. So when you make a series of little tiny decisions, you can get towards legality in a backdoor right. kind of right. way. And that's kind of what we have going on today. And it's not perfect, but it works. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. How many how many states here of our 50 um, have legalized recreational? You know, I, I looked at this number yesterday. I, I believe it's 39 states have some form of legality. And I think it's 19 states that have adult use. Yes. So that would be considered so, recreational adult use. Yeah. 19. Yeah. So not even half yet. See, I actually thought it was larger than that. So what do you think? You know, it, it's interesting. Um, I watched uh, um, last week's episode of Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday night. Yeah. And he had Chris Christie on his panel. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know I'm a former Jersey gal. Um, I've been out here now for 20 years. I, I, I'm guilty as charged right. as well. Um, you know, I wasn't in Jersey when Chris Christie was was in politics. Um 
But, you know, he was really clear. Bill asked him about marijuana. He's like, listen, as long as I was governor, I wasn't it wasn't wasn't happening. He goes, now there's a new guy in office. The new guy can do what he wants. And I thought, gosh, why are you so adamantly opposed to pot? Like, well, he was a federal prosecutor. Right. And, you know, remember, yeah. look, if, if, if you're on law enforcement and the prosecutorial side, yeah. when you think of marijuana, you, you love think of all, marijuana. All the crap, this, right. Yeah. It's this big bucket of cocaine and heroin and guns yeah. and weapons and violence and right. and poor treatment of people. But, uh, I mean, that's really what it is. Right. So you don't make the distinction. Anytime there's a big crime, marijuana is going to be present somehow, some way. Right. So you put those two things together and Christie's guilty of espousing the gateway theory drug, which right. has been debunked. It right. is not science. It is not true. Yeah. Meaning that if you or I ever to use cannabis, then the next thing we're yeah, going to try is heroin and the next thing <laughs> right. is going to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, it just, it, it, so, so, so there's those drug warriors out there and, you know, frankly, uh, th- there's no reason sometimes to change their minds, but you can't change their minds. Jeff Sessions, our former U.S. attorney under Trump, was one of the biggest drug warriors we ever saw in office. Yeah. I, you know, and and another thing that that uh, Mar pointed out on Friday night, which I didn't realize, was that, you know, marijuana is like a schedule one drug. Schedule one, meaning I'm like, how is that even any point out? You yeah, So it sits alongside with. I mean, he, he, you know, rattled off stuff that is like way worse <laughs> Yes, and, and yes. things that are way worse that are not schedule one drugs. And I thought, how is that possible? Like, and again, this is a whole, I mean, this is more of a, I think a political conversation, which, you know, we don't want to get, go down that rabbit hole, Sure, but, but I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, how is that a schedule one drug and stuff like maybe heroin's not or fentanyl? I'm like, how's that? And I, like I said, I, yeah. I may be speaking out of turn. I don't remember the list, but I was shocked when you read the list. Shocked. No, no, you're, 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 you're right. Cocaine is, is lower than schedule one. Right. Fentanyl is lower right. than schedule okay. one. I did remember so, it. Yeah. Um, so schedule one means that it has no medicinal value and has a high potential for abuse. Both of those things are false, but you have to look at the context, right? So you had this guy named Harry Anslinger. Harry Anslinger was the U.S.'s first Bureau of Narcotics chief. He was a henchman for big money interests. Yeah. He was a xenophobe. He was a racist. And at that point in time, and remember, this is in the this is in the 30s. So we're coming uh, we're, we're we're coming out of the temperance movement in the United States, right? Where we were all supposed to pretend that we never had any fun, and and we you know we right. dressed in three pink suits everywhere right. we went. Um, <laughs> this this was this was the the country we lived in. Mm-hmm. It led up to prohibition right. being introduced into the, the 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 Constitution for a period of time. But when the this guy saw. Uh, and when, you know, prominent people, all white males, notably, of course, uh, saw all black people and and Latinos using cannabis and listening to jazz music and the like, this was this was controversial. Yeah. So the easiest thing to do was to roll all of these things together in the 30s and prohibit the plant because it's not what we wanted our society right. to be, or at least that's the theory. Um, so, you know, there, there's a history there. But furthermore. The UN Convention on Narcotic Drugs in the 60s. Of all people, who did Nixon enlist to talk about the war on drugs? But Elvis Presley, who died with more drugs in the system. Dr- than yeah, he could probably a drug kill. overdose. Yeah, right. Um, you know, and, and you know, the king was the king, but at the, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know, he was no no saint in that no, respect. No. Um, 
And that was all done because of a UN convention that caused the Controlled Substances Act to be adopted. So that's what Biden said just last week. Let's reconsider this. Here we are, however many years later, um, and we're saying maybe we should consider this now because there's you know, tens of thousands of articles in scientific literature out there that show that it's not harmful to society and right. that it actually has medicinal benefit. Yep. Um, but we're slow to learn here in the U.S., maybe even globally as a species. Well, I think we're I think we're often a little bit provincial and maybe, you know, maybe that's part of the reason. Right. Or, you know, we, we live in a world of hypocrites everywhere. Do as everywhere. I say, not as I do. Right. And, and I think that's part of the problem. Uh, finally, what do you think it's going to take um, to get this to the federal level and get it passed and legalize it federally? I mean, is it going to mean enough, you know, stopping with the partisan and either getting enough D's in office to say, sorry, well, we can outvote you? Well, or, you know, how are these people? Because often what these politicians do, this is at least what I have noticed, is... You know, they vote based, they don't vote based on what their constituency wants. They no. vote based on some other, I don't even know what. They, they, they vote on their own personal beliefs. And, you know, I, I, I always I always thought about, you know, if I ever ran for office, you know, how that would yeah. shake out. How do you separate what you personally believe from what your constituents believe? And That's right. they're voting for you and your beliefs. So you're supposed to sort of reflect it. It's a it's a it's a sticky situation yes, there. It is. Um, you know, as it relates to politicians and policy. But that's the way that goes. But where we are is we are potentially on a path towards rescheduling uh, mm -hmm. or descheduling. Uh, mm -hmm. Joe Biden pardoned six thousand yeah. five hundred prisoners a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. He great. directed the uh, attorney general and the uh, agency head at Health and Human Services, who's responsible to 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 look at the the medicinal and scientific elements of the plan and said, you ought to consider whether we should reschedule this. And that's a formal first step. First time a sitting president's ever done that. So it's a yes. bold move. Um, and, you know, I will say a bold move coming from the man who has a senator. And, and I will tell you, I, I'm, I'm neither Republican nor Democrat, so I don't say anything right. politically. Same, same with uh, me. But, yep. but, but Biden put more people in jail with his minimum sentence policy uh, that, that started... Three decades changed the entire yep. composition of our federal prison system. Uh, Kamala Harris, as a district attorney, put more people behind jail for cannabis. So so my point is, you've got people in charge that uh, the Democrats have not been more favorable to this issue than the Republicans. Right. The Republicans are more likely to give the Chris Christie response, no, I just will never consider it. Uh, whereas at least the Democrats seem to be open to it, but their perspective on advancing it uh, from a, at least a social justice or a criminal justice perspective um, has not been particularly good. But maybe, just maybe we're on that pathway, um, but we still have a robust industry in spite of the federal legality. And it'd be interesting to see that our neighbors to the north, the Canadians, and our neighbors to the south, the Mexicans, have both legal marketplaces. They may push us to legalize cannabis who saw that coming? Yeah, well, nobody. Um, so is there anything that we have not talked about that I missed asking you that that do you want to talk about before we uh, close out here? Well, no, I, I mean, except to say that, you know, the, 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 the dynamics of building and running a business are extraordinarily interesting to me. And, and, and that's part of our conversation that, that I really did enjoy uh, both now and, and, and previously. And, 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 you know, that is a common theme that comes up, of course, in, in, 
in your authentically successful podcast. And, and I enjoy that. And I like to think about that. Now, I do like to say, while I have outside business interests, I don't run those interests. I, I participate now. Uh, I don't know if I'd want to be in a position of building my own business and putting all those things in place, having done that for 12 or 13 years. Um, but people are attracted to it and they're enamored by it. And the idea of the quote unquote freedom that comes with having your own business um, after a while, that freedom isn't such an element of freedom. Um, and <laughs> how do you see that? I mean, that yeah. would be the only thing I'd love to just wrap this up with is, well, how do you see that? How do you, how do you balance this notion of it's freedom? I'm the boss. I get to do what I want. Then all of a sudden, no, you're not. I was trapped. I was in a jail cell and I had to get out of it. Yeah. 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 So that's, a, that's a really good question. And, you know, I think about that a lot. You know, I've been in business for myself since, yeah, I'm almost 21 years now. And um, it, it's hard. It's a grind. You know, whether you're working by yourself, you have contractors like you started with, you have W-2 employees, it's hard. There's a lot to do. You know, you have to be smart enough. And it took me time to learn this. Uh, and I say to everybody, use your genius where your genius needs to be used and hire genius people to do the shit that you don't know how to do. It's really that simple. It's the only thing that's going to help make your life a little bit better. Um, like I said, it, it's absolutely gorgeous here today. You got a nice breeze. It's, I think, I don't know, Denver's hitting, what, about 70-ish today? I mean, I'm, I'm like you, I'm higher than Denver. High is in altitude. <laughs> and, uh, that's a, that's a um, uh, Freudian slip. Um, you know, I look outside and I think, oh, I'd love to be out. I'd love to go down to the ranch and go riding. Well, I can't. I got too much to do. And I got interviews, right? So, you know, owning your own business is not for everyone. It's not always all that it's cracked up to be. It's not like you're going to be an overnight success and make billions of dollars. It takes a lot of hard work and it is not for everybody. Not everybody's cut out to do it. Nope. Nope. You know, I think for me, I just, you know, what I love about being in my own business is um, I was not a great employee (laughs) years ago. And there were a lot of reasons for that, but. And I've learned a lot since then. Um, and I'm, I, you know, would I be a better employee now? I couldn't even tell you. But I've been on my own too much. I don't know why anybody would want to hire me to be their employee. I know a couple <laughs> of people who would. Um, and, and then I'd have to consider, do I really want to leave my own practice? But anyway, that that with that said, uh, Bob Hoban, chair of the Cannabis Industry Group for Clark Hill, Denver's Clark Hill's Denver office. This has really been a, a great conversation. I, uh, I have been really looking forward to it and I appreciate your time. Likewise, Carl. I enjoyed it the same, and uh, I look forward to to continuing to follow your podcast and uh, uh, pick up some additional lessons in business leadership along the way. So thank you for that. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews 
go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.